Let's, amen. Let's uh, join in a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much that you alone are the one we have to depend on. You alone are the one who loves us. You alone are the one we are here to worship today. We ask that in our time today, we would be a people who would walk out of here looking and acting more like Jesus than we did when we walked in here. For those who don't know you, God, I, I pray that you would open their hearts, that we give them a deeper understanding as to what it means to be a Christian. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. It is good to be back here. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Pastor A.J. Smith. I'm pastor of Community at Restoration Church in Philadelphia. And yeah. Is that, are you, are you fans of Philadelphia? Restoration Church? Uh, cool, cool, all right. Nice, all right. It's like, maybe you know Restoration Church. I don't know, <laughs> did you used to go there? I don't know, but it's a, um, It is good to be back here again today. I preached here, uh, it, was, it was snowing when I preached here last, so it was a while ago, but it is very good to be back. Pastor Brandon, or as y'all call him, Pastor B, is a uh, very dear friend of mine, and he is preaching at Epiphany Fellowship in Philly this morning, so we're kind of jumping around this morning. So it is very good to be here. I have my wife with me this time. Leah's right there. Say hi. Able to get away. Our children are not here with us this time, so maybe next time we'll bring them. But I know my daughter wanted to come, but uh, next time we'll bring them. So I would like to get us started. Let's jump right in to the word this morning. 2,000 years ago, there was a Roman philosopher named Seneca, and Seneca said this. Our plans miscarry because they have no aim. When a man does not know what harbor he is making for, no wind is the right wind. In other words, if we don't have a goal, if we don't have an aim, if we don't have a purpose in our lives, then we're what you call aimless. And if your life is aimless, you experience a host of consequences, and that's just not uh, an opinion of a philosopher from 2,000 years ago, psychologists will tell us the same thing today, that those who do not have goals or purposes in their lives are more susceptible to boredom, obviously, but anxiety and depression. If you have anxiety and depression, you're more accept, uh, susceptible to substance abuse. And most of us are familiar with you know, drugs and alcohol and things like that. We, we know people use these substances to mask pain, but what we don't know often is what psychologists will tell us that a lot of times Substance are used in order to give very desperate people a sense of purpose, even if their purpose is just to feed an addiction. And this need for purpose is not prejudice. All people need purposes, rich people, poor people, black people, white people, and, and we've seen this play out many ways. We, we've all seen the example of, of the individual who otherwise seems very well-to-do, even spoiled, right? This, this person has everything given to them. They have a lot of money. Maybe they were a child star. Maybe they were born into a very rich family. And, and not far into their lives, they seem to have gone off the rails, right? They, they look like a mess. They're, they're a train wreck. And you say, how can this person who seems to have everything they need be such a mess? Well, it's because they don't have a purpose. They don't have to work for anything. They don't have anything to do, right? They, whatever they used to do is no longer there. And at the other hand, we've seen many people 
who are in extremely difficult circumstances really thrive. We see this in survival situations. We see this if you read stories from a concentration camp. So one place I've seen this particularly is in a show I like to watch sometimes. It's, it's, you, you ever watch the lock-up shows? Lock-up Raw? Lock-up Extended Stay? Remember those? Okay, well, they were like a documentary series. <laughs> now, I, I thought this was like a thing, when I, but I guess not. So it's just like a documentary series. It's on Netflix where you, they're, they're inside different prisons for like months at a time, and they kind of just watch these inmates. And I'm really fascinated by being inside prison. I don't know why, but I really, I really like watching these prisoners, what they're doing. And what's really interesting is this one guy, um, he'd been in jail when I saw this for... for what was it, 27 years for, for terrible crimes, you know, attempted murder, rape, things like this. And, and he had now, 27 years later, be, become a very different person. He was a shadow of the indi individual he used to be. But, but now you see this guy, and, and he's loved by the guards, respected by the other inmates, never has any issues, trusted by everyone, because he has a purpose. And he's very intent on his purpose. And this person's purpose is quilting. Quilting, yes, you heard me right. <laughs> This is in a maximum security prison. But this guy is so beloved that he has a, they give him a sewing machine. They give the guy scissors, even, to sit there. And the guy sits there all day, smiling, making quilts. And there's rooms filled with these quilts that he's made, which are beautiful. And, and, and the thing he does, he doesn't just keep these quilts for display. He donates them to homeless shelters, or he gives them to families of uh, uh, soldiers who were killed overseas, or different things like that. So this guy wakes up every day making the best of his circumstances. He, he stands out among prisoners. He's a genuinely happy guy because even though he's in prison for life, he has a sense of purpose. So regardless who you ask, I think I've made my point here so far that we would all probably agree that people who have a sense of purpose do better than people who lack a sense of purpose. So the title of today's sermon is simply Finding Your Purpose. So look with me today in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to be in verses 20 to 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 20 to 21. And it should be on the screen. I am uh, reading from the Christian Standard Bible, CSB. So I will start reading now. Follow along with me. 2 Corinthians 5, 20 to 21. Therefore... We are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. My big idea today is this, Christians have an assignment. Christians have an assignment, and, and this assignment is found in three parts here. Christians are God's ambassadors, Christians are God's beggars, and Christians are God's righteousness. Christians are God's ambassadors, God's beggars, and God's righteousness. First point, let's jump in. Christians are God's ambassadors. Look with me at the beginning of verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Let's stop right there because I just started with the word Therefore, and any of us know that when you see the word therefore, you've got to ask, what is it there for? We don't, start, we don't start a sentence that way. I don't walk up and say, therefore, I want you to do this. What are you referring back to? So Paul is referring back to something. So even though we just read that verse, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read, and you can read along 
verses 16 through 19, just so we get a little context, because Paul's saying, therefore. Verse 16, from now on then, actually, I'm going to read 15. And he died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. From now on then, we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective. Even if we've known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet we no longer know him in this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. Everything is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. That was a lot right there, I know that. But basically, Paul is saying this. And if you were to read even before that, in the death and resurrection of Christ, a new age was inaugurated. A new time period was started. When Christ died and rose from the dead, a cosmic shift happened and everything changed and everything was beginning to be changed. And Paul talks about some of the changes through here. We just saw that. First, he said, if you're a Christian and you align yourself with Christ, you have new perspective. He said, we no longer see things the way we used to. We don't, we don't see people the way we used to. We don't see Jesus the way we used to. We don't see the world the way we used to. You're given new eyes. And then he says, after that, you have a new position, which is the position of being reconciled to God. That's a new position. In this new age, you have a new position. You're reconciled to God. And what does that mean? That means humanity's relationship with God has been fixed. And we're going to be talking about the word reconciled a lot here. So I'm going to take a second and actually make sure we understand what the word reconciled means. Because being reconciled does not mean just being reunited. Let me explain why. If you're reunited to someone, it means that you were separated by distance or tragedy even. You think of a child separated from their parents or, or, a, or a, you know, a married couple separated by some event. And they're finally against all odds, reunited with each other, right? Being reconciled is very different. If you are reconciled to someone, it means that you've exchanged a hostile relationship for a peaceful relationship. In other words, there was some offense. There was some act. There was some issue in this relationship that caused the relationship to be breached, to be broken. It wasn't separated because there was just some distance or it was just some unfortunate event. It was this relationship was broken. This relationship was hostile. But when that issue is dealt with, when that issue is resolved, the people are reconciled. So there's a difference there. So here Paul says that we are reconciled to God. So apparently humans weren't just lost or distant from God, but there was an actual breach in the relationship. There was some offense that had taken place in humanity's relationship with God that had to be dealt with, that had to be fixed. And we have a story here, and we'll get to this more later, about a God who took the initiative and did the costly thing to take care of that issue, that thing, that offense that was keeping God and humanity apart. And we are reconciled to God. And then Paul says, right after that, we're still in the introduction, by the way, but the rest of this goes very quickly. <laughs> he says, after that, we're not just reconciled, but we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. We are reconcilers. 
So if you're in Christ, if you're recognizing this new age, yeah, you have new eyes. And yeah, you have a new position, but you're not just called to sit back and see things differently and enjoy your different position, but we're actually called to do something. And here, Paul is, is wrapping up this very dense theological uh, ideas that he's just laid out. And he's saying, how can I best put this into one phrase? How can I explain the Christian's role most clearly? And he says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. This is the best way to explain your role is as an ambassador. So what exactly is an ambassador and how does that fit? By definition, an ambassador is an, an accredited diplomat sent by a country as its official representative to a foreign country. We know about diplomats. We got diplomats, right? I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. We have ambassadors, you know, same thing, whatever. We got ambassadors, right? So you got ambassador to Sweden or to Portugal, and they represent our country in these different places, right? And now, in, in ancient times, the ambassador wouldn't necessarily be a permanent person in each country. It didn't really work that way, but ambassador had a very specific function, and Paul's audience would have known about this function. And there were three main things you would know about an ambassador. One, an ambassador was commissioned for a special assignment. An ambassador represented the sender, and most importantly, the ambassador exercised the authority of the sender. And since the ambassador had such a unique role, and since the ambassador represented the nation in such a way, it was expected that an ambassador would receive certain treatment. And Philo talked about this in something that was called the law with regard to ambassadors. And the law with regard to ambassadors basically said that an ambassador could always receive and was expected to receive hospitality, a warm welcome, food, shelter, and a safe exit, regardless of how risky the information was, regardless of how sensitive the journey was. That ambassador, you know, don't shoot the messenger, the ambassador would always be treated well, no matter what they were there to talk about, whatever message they were there to send. And this wasn't because an ambassador was royalty. This wasn't because the ambassador was the king. It was because the ambassador represented the king in such a way that the two identities could not be separated. You couldn't tell the king apart. So if an ambassador came to your town and you, and you ignored him or sent him away or mistreated him, you might as well have spat in the king's face because as far as anyone else was concerned, that ambassador was the king there in your town. And here Paul tells us that this is the most accurate, best way to understand our relationship as Christians on this earth. In the same way that an ambassador's identity was inextricably bound to that of his king, so too are our words, our actions, our lives, our beliefs tied up with Jesus Christ that you cannot separate the two, but we are his authority, we are his voice, and we are his presence here on the earth. If you have said yes to God's invitation to not only receive personal salvation, but also to link hands with him as he restores the universe, 
then you are on assignment from the king and you've been given a very specific message. And your message is this, God has reconciled the world to himself and he invites any and all citizens to come and join in on what he's doing. And that's no small message. Now we're all in different life stages here. Some of us are single, you know, we're in Brooklyn. So you got you got a lot of go-getters here. I know that. You got people who are doing stuff. I was talking to Chris this morning. He's like, I heard you're talking about purpose today. I'm excited for that, you know. Everyone's, you know, whether you're a parent, whether you got young kids, whether you got older kids, whether you're, you're, you're a student, whatever you're doing here, everyone's looking for a purpose. Everyone's looking for that thing that gets them up in the morning, that thing that fulfills them, that thing that brings them life. And some of us have found that thing. Right? Some of us are like, man, I really found my niche. I really found my gifting. I really found that, that job or that role or whatever it is that brings me life, that brings me fulfillment, that brings me value. And then there's other people at the same time who say, I feel like life's been disappointing. I, I, I feel like I haven't found my thing. And I feel like... I should have done this by now. Or I should have done these things differently. Or I should have these things by now. Or I should have that person by now. Or I really, really, really need this to happen for me to be okay. And, and when we think that way, we say, once all of these things line up, then I'll know where I'm going, right? Then I will have my future figured out. Then I'll have a good reason to be confident every day. Then I will have my purpose. And I pray that everyone here finds the calling in their life that brings them fulfillment, that brings them joy, that brings them life. These are very, very good aspirations. But let us not be deceived into thinking that these things, these educational, these family, these business pursuits will ever bring us ultimate fulfillment. If you're a follower of Christ, if you're a follower of Christ, your purpose is not a secret. You've been given an assignment. You've been entrusted with a message from the king. And if you keep that information front and center then you don't have to stress about, does this job really bring me ultimate fulfillment? Is this relationship really giving me a sense of purpose? Am I really fulfilled in every way from this hobby or this pursuit? You don't have to ask those questions because you know those things, as good as they are, were never meant to do that thing. You're asking too much of these things. They were never meant to bring you ultimate fulfillment. Your day-to-day -day tasks are super important. And, and there are very valuable things, but don't let those things take center stage. You have a task, you have an assignment that is so much bigger than you know, so let that be the thing that gets you out of bed sometimes. Christians, you have been given an assignment. One, you are God's ambassadors. If we are ambassadors, we have a message. What is our message? Number two, Christians are God's beggars. Read with me the rest of verse 20. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. 
No, I know my title here is a little bit exaggerated, you know, being God's beggars. That's kind of a lot, but it, it worked. But we don't only really say pleaders, right? But Paul doesn't necessarily mean you're supposed to be on your hands and knees, you know, begging for people to be saved. But he does use the word plead here. And, and what he means by that is that our message actually matters. It's actually important. It's actually important enough that it's worth asking people to consider and worth actually pleading with people in certain times. I mean, think about it. God dealt with the thing that was separating him from humanity. This is amazing. This is incredible news. God did everything to reconcile his relationship with us. So this is something that's enough that we should ask people and plead with people and, and, and talk to people about considering, right? It's valuable enough that it's worth our time. Uh, did anyone, uh, anyone see the eclipse the other week? Anyone go watch the eclipse? Yeah, did the eclipse thing, yeah. Anyone think it was a little bit of a, like, <laughs> like you know, you know two, 2.42, it was, two, it was coming at 2.44 in Philly. 2.42, we're like going to the park with the kids. I'm like, it's going to be dark in the middle of the day. What do you see? It's going to be crazy. Like, it's going to be nighttime. You know, we get there. I'm like, I don't even know there's an eclipse. Like, it doesn't look any different to me. But there's a, but there's a, there was a, you know, we didn't have the glasses either. Anyone peek at it? Anyone else take a peek without glasses? Okay. That's terrible. Y'all shouldn't do that. But... <laughs> I have my, my camera on selfie. I said, you know, you can look that way at it. And, but I just, you know, I think that kind of did, you know, that covered me. So we're at this park, we're at this big open field. And, you know, we don't have a plan. We don't have glasses. What we, I don't know. I don't know what we think we're going to do. But there was a lady there who had the coveted glasses, right? And she had these eclipse glasses. And she was very nice and very generous. She was like, you got to see this eclipse. It's blowing my mind. You know, she was so excited about it. So I was like, all right, let me, let me get these glasses. I was looking at it. I said, okay, I guess, you know, I see it. But... I turn, you know, while I'm doing that, the lady starts yelling and saying to my daughter, sweetie, stop, stop, please, for God's sake, stop, don't look at it. And my three-year-old daughter is standing there <laughs> looking up at this eclipse. And she's very sensitive. So as soon as this lady does it, my daughter, you know, runs away screaming and crying, terrified of this, this stranger dared, you know, yell at her like that. And the lady felt terrible. But the lady had information. She knew that eclipse was not good to look at and a three-year-old should not be staring at an eclipse, right? And, and, and she was willing to make an emotional appeal to my daughter because she really was concerned for her well-being. She knew that it came at a risk of her maybe getting a little bit upset, maybe getting a little bit scared. But in that moment, she said, you can't be looking at this eclipse, so I'm going to do, I'm going to say whatever it takes to make sure you don't look at that eclipse. That is the way we need to view our assignment. So many times we've seen evangelism done in a way that's fear-based, wrath-based, scaring you, guilting you, shaming you, bullying you, arguing you, debating you, convincing you. But what we see here and what we see often come from Jesus and others is an emotional plea that comes out of love and concern for the individual. Not to check someone off their list, not to 
to have an extra crown in heaven or whatever people's agendas are, but because they genuinely love and care about this individual enough where they're saying, please just consider this. Just hear me out. This is something worth your time. And I'm not doing this for any other reason. The fact that I genuinely love you. I genuinely care about you. There's no other agenda here, right? And you say, I get that. That's good. I'm, I'm hearing some amens. That's good. But then some of you are saying, but I don't really feel it like that. I don't really care that much, if I'm honest. I walk down the street, my heart is not broken. I don't have this emotional sense like a three-year-old looking at the eclipse where I'm like, please listen to me. There's this valuable information. I really don't feel it that way. And I say, thank you for trusting me with your secret. Um, I'm glad you told me that. And, and the good news is this. A plea comes from a place of compassion and passion. And these two things can be nurtured. These two things can be worked on. These two things can be grown. Has anyone heard about the new app you can download on your phone that automatically tells you which one of your friends is racist? <laughs> it's called Facebook. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about, you know. <laughs> you know, you're sitting there, Uncle Steve likes alt-rights comment. Wait, hold on, what that, what's going on? You know, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, and, you know. And I'm sitting there, I'm, you know, Charlottesville stuff's going down a few weeks ago. And I'm sitting there, you know, I'm, I, I live in the inner city where our congregation's mostly African-American, but I'm from the country. You know, you know, that's, I'm, I'm not a city guy. And so I have a very mixed up background and I got, my Facebook is just, you know, crazy. So I'm sitting there and I'm not on there like that, but I'm scrolling through there and I'm just getting stressed. People said, what, you like, what? You're, you're arguing that, seriously? Like, you know, I'm going through like this and my, I'm sweating, my heart's, I'm pacing around the room and they have worship rehearsal going down in my living room and I'm, you know, walking around up there all angry. And afterwards, you know, my wife and our friend were sitting at the table and I was sitting there, I was like, I, I need to delete all social media to this thing passes. I cannot deal with this. I cannot deal with this. But as I thought about it more, as I reflected more, I said, you know what? I want to delete my social media, but, but I shouldn't. And I want to block certain people, but, but I, I can't do that. And for some people, that might be the right choice. There's lots of trauma involved with things like this. That, that might absolutely be the right choice for some people to say, I need to step away because this is causing me serious anxiety. But for me as a white guy, I had to step back and say, if I were to delete this and not look at this, it would be very easy for me to go on walking around in life and believing that racism doesn't exist in our country and racial injustice is not a real threat and a real issue in our country today. So I said, let me step back here and I'm going to actually, instead of looking away, I'm going to look deeper at this thing. I want to look at the belly of the beast. I want to sit in the brokenness. I'm going to watch the interviews. I'm going to read the articles. I'm going to look at the comments. I'm going to think about the things that people like, not because it's interesting, not because it's easy, but it's because 
when you look at things like this and you know that you lack compassion or you want to get away and you don't want to care or do anything, sometimes the best thing to do is to look headfirst at suffering, is to sit in brokenness, to feel it. Because with me, after doing that, my heart began to break. I began to feel sad. It made me want to be an agent of change. It made me realize this is something to speak up about. This is a real issue. This is something that needs to be dealt with. This is something that can't be ignored. So for me, that was something I need to do. Now, if you are someone who says, I want to be an individual who pleads with people to think about Jesus, but I lack compassion, your way of finding that compassion may be different for you, whatever your avenue may be. But I will tell you that the answer is not to run away from suffering. The answer isn't to ignore suffering, but the answer is actually to look directly at suffering, to look at brokenness, to sit in a while. And guess what? Let your feelings get hurt a little bit. Maybe be depressed for half a day. Maybe let these things really bother you. It's so easy for us to turn away and turn around for some of us to just act like terrible things in the world aren't happening. But if you choose to look at suffering and say, I'm not going to ignore this, it's going to affect you. It's going to change you. And the more you are affected by suffering, you know, healthy balance with everything, but the more you are affected with suffering, you're going to care about people. You're going to feel a need to see people restored, and you're going to be more likely to ask people and plead with people to please be reconciled to God. But you need more than a broken heart. Remember I said there's two parts here. You need compassion, but you also need passion. And this one's a little more simple. Do you have passion for the message? And do you have passion for the individual behind the message? Because if not, your compassion will just leave you in a depressed place, right? Some of you say, I don't really feel passionate about Jesus. I'm not really as fiery as I used to be, or maybe I've never been, and I've always wanted to be, and I, I, don't, I don't feel really compelled to, to, to do anything when I hear his message. I, I guess I believe it, but it doesn't really seem to be affecting me in any way. If, if you've ever been out somewhere, out of the city probably, because I know this has been hard for me to see stars where I live, but if you've ever been somewhere where you're looking at stars... I had experience this summer. I, 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 was, I was out at the beach, and, and it was nighttime, and I went out to look at the stars, and I sat there, and I, I come out, and I said, oh, there's, there's not a lot of stars out here tonight. Right? So I said, I'm just going to sit back and look at the sky. A few minutes later, I said, well, there's, there's a good amount of stars out here tonight. Maybe you've been here before. 20 minutes go by, I'm saying, there is a ton of stars in the sky tonight. The, the sky is absolutely filled with stars. Now, there wasn't more stars than there were before, but what happened was the longer I looked into the sky, the longer I basked in the sky, stars, celestial bodies, all these beautiful things began to fill my vision. In the same way, if you don't feel passion for Jesus, if you don't have love for Jesus, if your heart is not filled with Jesus, maybe you need to sit back and just bask in Jesus more sometimes. You need to look deeper into Jesus because the deeper you look at Jesus, the more you will see him fill your vision. You will see him everywhere in the world. You will see him in yourself. And the more you see Jesus, the more you love Jesus. And if you love Jesus, you cannot help but love his message and be passionate about what he's done, what he's doing, and what he will do. 
So you do these things. You say, I nurture compassion. I nurture passion. And now you say, I am completely sold out to see the entire world reconciled to God right here. Right? You are completely sold out to that. And then once that happened, I want to tell you this. Don't become overwhelmed by the weight of the world. I've seen enough Videos, y'all seen these videos? Where, you know, and I, know, I know some of these guys love these guys. It comes from a good place. But you have the individual, you have the pastor, and he's on a street somewhere, maybe um, in India or some other place that's not here. And, and he said, behind me are 10 million people who have never heard the name Jesus, and the lifespan here is 40 years. What are you going to do about it? Right? And you're like, oh, my gosh, I don't know. Like, <laughs> do you take credit cards? Like, do, how do I get... Do I get a plane ticket there? Like, what do I do? There's this huge burden on me now to somehow introduce 10 million people to Jesus here before they die and the death rates. Like, I, you know, I don't know what to do with this. What, what are you supposed to do with that information? And I've also been part of a lot of, in my younger days, evangelistic campaigns where, we, you know, you go through, you know, I remember coming here, you know, to, to New York City and just giving out tracts to people, just throwing tracts at people. Just, how many tracts? I gave out 10,000 tracts today. Good. So, you know, mathematically, 10% of people who read tracts get saved. So you probably got this many people. Like, it's like... People who do this stuff have good intentions. I know all these people. They, they come from a very good place. But the problem with this outlook on evangelism is that we are placing burdens on people that God never places on us. God has never asked you to save anyone. It's not your fault if someone rejects Jesus. You are never responsible if someone winds up in hell. If someone goes to hell, that is never, ever, in any situation, your fault. You never see that in the Bible. It's never anyone else's fault if someone ends up in hell. And the salvation of the world is not on your shoulders. Everyone in the world coming to know Jesus is not something you or I are going to accomplish in our lifetimes, and that's okay. And you say, I don't know about the way, you know, you don't know about how, what I'm, let me just try to restart my sentence here. <laughs> you don't know about what I'm saying. You don't know how you feel about what I'm saying right now. Really, it's not our job to save everyone. Why do you say that? I say it because if you watch Jesus in the Gospels, you see Jesus, someone who is extremely passionate, extremely loving, perfectly loving, perfectly passionate, right? He's the embodiment of everything, of what it looks like to be a perfect human in communion with God. And what do we see Jesus do? We see Jesus go through cities and preach to people and then not preach to other people. We see Jesus feeding thousands of people but not feeding everyone. We see Jesus healing a lot of sick people, but not healing all of the sick people. And he even tells Judas one time, the poor will always be among you. This is not because Jesus is apathetic. This is not because Jesus doesn't care. This is not because Jesus had, had other things to do. You know, we see Jesus other times going away and taking a nap. We see Jesus going and spending 40 days in prayer. We see Jesus doing all these other things. And it's not because Jesus was all over the place. It's because Jesus had something what I like to call confident stillness, right? And I think that's what God wants for us. Jesus was absolutely passionate and certain about his message, but Jesus was never freaking out. We're always freaking out. And a lot of our evangelism is based on freakouts. 
Like, what are you going to do? Well, I don't know. What are you going to do? Let's Jesus was never doing that. He was never freaking out. Jesus had confidence in God. He knew God was in control. And I think that's the same confidence, stillness that Jesus wants for us. And once we come to terms with that, we realize that the message of reconciliation, the message of the gospel, if you spend any, remember, we're not called to go into the, all the world and make converts. We're called to make disciples. And if you spend any time discipling people, you know that it, it takes time. It takes investment. But the gospel message is best given and best received when it comes along with real friendship and real relationship. And we only have room for so many friends in our lives. Right? I know I do. I can, I can handle, you know, a few people at a time. I can't, I, can't, I can't be good friends and walking with 50, 60 people. I mean, that's absurd. No one can do that. So this isn't to say don't care about evangelism. It says, I'm saying no, care about it more than ever, but capitalize on your own sphere of influence. Use what God's put in front of you. Use the people you have. Don't sit here and get so discouraged about the whole world. What are you doing with old girl you've been friends with for, you know, t 10 years? You never talk about anything. Or, or the person sits next to you. So capitalize on your spheres of influence. Capitalize on your own friendships. God has everything in control. Rest in that. Christians have been given an assignment. You are God's ambassadors and you are God's beggars. Last point. Christians are God's righteousness. Look with me at verse 21. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Christians are God's righteousness. Now, the first two assignments may have made sense to you. You say, I understand how someone could be an ambassador. I also understand how someone could be a beggar. But how can someone be righteousness? How can you be a quality? How can you be an attribute? It's like saying, I'm going to be happiness, you know. How can that be possible? Beyond that, how can you be God's righteousness? That doesn't even seem to make any sense. Remember, Paul's not randomly listing off things here for no reason. He, he's speaking you know, out of a certain context, and he's talking about being reconciled to God. And what Paul is doing here is he's explaining exactly what went down at the cross. He's saying, here's the guts of what happened. We talk about being, you know, being reconciled to God and being saved at the cross. But here Paul is getting to the nitty-gritty. He's explaining ontologically what went down at that cross, what actually happened metaphysically, all these things, what went down there. And, and not only that, how does that affect our purpose? First, he says this, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us. What is sin? Sin is that thing that's embedded in the human experience. No one is exempt from sin. It denotes our shortcomings, our inability to live up to the people we were created to be, our, our, our propensity towards failing at our goals, our propensity to, to treat everyone as we should. That is what sin is, and it, it shows up in our small acts of selfishness, our small acts of unkindness, and it shows up in very large-scale acts of oppression, large-scale acts of injustice. Sin is the reason why the world is a mess. Sin is what broke down our original relationship with God. Sin was that thing we talked about that, that, that was the offense between humanity's relationship and God's relationship. And here Paul tells us 
exactly how that thing was dealt with. We said before that God was able to deal with that issue so we could be restored to him. And here Paul tells us exactly how that thing, that sin, was dealt with. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us. This was written, you know, roughly 2,000 years ago, and some of Paul's audience were first century Jews. And they would have been, you know, you talk in our culture about sin. People know it's a church word, but it doesn't really mean anything in our culture. We don't use that word outside of religious talk. Um, but, but first century Jews would have known a lot about sin. Remember, at that time on, in the Old Testament, Israelites, they were God's people. And, and if you read the book of Leviticus and other parts of the Old Testament, you would learn how God set up a system for people to deal with that glaring issue of sin that was so present in their lives. And what they would do, I won't get into specifics because there's a lot of different ceremonies and rituals they did, but every once in a while, the people would take an animal, right? They would take a bull or a goat or a calf. And, and what they would do is this. They'd lay this animal on an altar and they would, we don't often talk about this part, they would place their hands on its head. And they would symbolically transfer all of their guilt, all of their sin, all of their shortcomings from maybe the last year onto that animal and say, this is all going on to you. And then they would kill that animal and they would burn up its remains. And this would in some way atone for their sin, be their substitute, take off their guilt. It would, it would be passed onto this animal and the animal would be destroyed so that in some way they were able to retain the relationship with God. They were able to be sinless before God, before obviously another year would go by or whatever amount of time, and they would have to do this again, right? This wasn't God's ultimate plan, and this wasn't the end. This was the means, and this was a picture of what God ultimately planned to do. And this was, he would send his own son, who would be called the Holy Lamb of God. And our sins all the sins of humanity would be placed and transferred, not symbolically, but really, onto his head. And he would be destroyed. He would be killed. And he would be the ultimate substitute, the ultimate atonement, the ultimate death blow to sin. And it would be the last sin offering. You wouldn't need to put animals on altars anymore. It would be done. It would be over. And sin would finally be dealt with once and for all. And you say, that's fine. But Paul doesn't just talk about a sin offering here. He says he became sin. He didn't just become an offering. Jesus became sin. In some way, that's truly beyond our understanding. We can't really fathom how this worked. But Jesus, in some way, transmuted, became identified with, took on the nature of sin itself, not just hypothetical sins or real sins, real things you've committed, real things the, the worst people you can imagine have committed. And while this blood sacrifice was real, Jesus was a blood sacrifice. Jesus was the lamb of God. It was not just another sacrifice. It wasn't just buying people more time. It wasn't something that would have to be repeated time and time again, because the disease of sin, this, this disease that's passed down through humanity was injected into Jesus. And when Jesus died, the disease died with him. And when Jesus got up from the grave, he left the disease behind so that sin would once and for all be cured. It would be gone. It would be done with. And Jesus was able to walk away and leave the sin behind him in the tomb. Amen, right? And you say, well, this is a lot for someone to go through. This is quite the feat that Jesus did. This was quite the, 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 the terrible thing that he went through. And the question is, why? 
Why did Jesus do this? Why did God do this? Why would God become a man to be killed for the very people who walked away from him and the very people who wanted to kill him when he finally came to earth? And, and the rest of verse 21 tells us that. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In the same way that our sins were transferred onto Jesus, his righteousness was transferred onto us. This is the great exchange, and this was the worst trade ever made in history. You don't talk about bad trades, right? I don't know about sports, but I hear about it. There's apparently, there, apparently, there's a, some type of trade that happens every year. I don't know. But, but, you know, there's good trades and bad trades. This was the worst trade that's ever been done. Here you have a God man, perfect and holy, says, here, I have a deal for you. Ready for this trade? I'm going to live a perfect life. I'm going to come to earth. I don't have to. I'm going to live a perfect life. And, here's what, and, and you've lived an imperfect life. I'm going to become all your imperfection. I'm going to become all your sin, all of your rebellion, everything you've done wrong. And I'm going to actually deal with all the consequences of that. And in return, I'm going to give you my righteousness. His perfection. His right standing with God. His sinless life. Everything that made Jesus a God man. Everything that set him apart from every other human. Every quality, every attribute was transferred onto us in exchange for what? In exchange for our sins. In exchange for our rebellion. For you, for me, for all humanity. This was God's plan. This was his way of reconciling us to himself. So not only are we in a restored relationship in that we benefit from Jesus's righteousness, but he says, no, you are the righteousness of God. How, again, we'll ask the question. We said, we said, how can you become sin? How can you become righteousness? How can he say that so that we might become the righteousness of God. Righteousness is a quality. Righteousness is an attribute. Righteousness is God's perfection. It's God's ultimate goodness. It's a thing that makes God God. How can we be the righteousness of God? How could righteousness ever be embodied in human form? It has been. And that's what we see in the person of Jesus. When you look at Jesus, you see what God's righteousness would look like in a skin suit. You see what righteousness would look like if it had arms, if it had legs, if it had a voice. It shows up in the person of Jesus. And when Jesus died and when Jesus ascended into heaven, he looked at you and he looked at me and said, now it's your turn to be the righteousness of God on earth. And throughout the Bible, we see ourselves frequently described as the body of Christ. We're considered the body of Christ, and we think of that in very churchy terms. But if you read the original talk about that, it's very much literal. Like some of us are the legs, and some of us are the arms, and some of us are the eyes. That we collectively make up a giant Jesus on earth. We're his body walking around on this planet. So it doesn't mean, as some of us like to do, sit back and just talk and pontificate about what it means to be the righteousness of God. I'm the righteousness of God. We talk about righteousness. Well, that's fine. That's good to enjoy your position in Christ. But Jesus was the righteousness of God, and he didn't just sit back and enjoy that, but it moved him to action. It moved him to do something. So if you are the righteousness of God, then be Jesus in the world. That's the best way to prove and to, to manifest the righteousness of God as your own identity. Love the things Jesus loved. Speak up for the things Jesus spoke up for. 
Be real with people in the way Jesus was real with people. Don't be afraid to call people on their stuff, but also show compassion, show love, show healing. Be willing to bleed for people. That's what it looks like to be the righteousness of God. Christian, you've been given an assignment. You are God's ambassador, you are God's beggar, and you are God's righteousness. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful once again that we are able to be in your presence that we are able to come together as your people under the banner of Jesus. We ask that you would help us to not feel overwhelmed, to not feel overburdened by the call to be your ambassadors, to be your beggars, to be your righteousness, God, but that we would be empowered by your spirit this very day to walk out with hearts filled with compassion, with hearts filled with passion for you, for your, for, for your message, for the gospel, for the great act of restoration and reconciliation that you accomplished, God. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.